Coming up on this edition of the 414 Sports Podcast, we're talking NBA draft and all of the various connections to us here in the 414. We'll get into some NFL news, more happening off the field than on. Obviously, we'll get to the Brewers after a nice weekend against the Toronto Blue Jays. We've got some golf news as the PGA and Live Tour continue their soap opera. And we'll close things out today with one of the best epic walk-offs in all of professional sports, and it's not necessarily for the good. We'll get to it all next. It's the 414 Sports Podcast. Let's go. But instead, it's the 414 Sports Podcast, and it starts right now. Welcome in. This is the Monday edition of the 414 Sports Podcast. I'm Don Wachillis. Thank you so much for logging in and joining us, whether you've done so on Spotify, Google, Apple, or any of the other five platforms that we currently reside on. Glad to be with you to kick off this week as we head into the 4th of July weekend. We're finally going to get an opportunity to talk about the NBA draft, which took place last week, and the spin uh, with regards to the Milwaukee and Wisconsin area, has it impacted the NBA? A little bit later, we'll talk about, as I said in the opening, the NFL. A lot of stories taking place off the field as opposed to on. So we'll dive into at least two of them that I think right now are standing in the forefront with regards to the Shield. We'll get into some Brewer baseball later. We'll continue to talk about the world of professional golf and the soap opera it has become. And we'll close out today with one of the great exits in professional sports in the midst of competing that has occurred in quite some time. So all of that coming up on this episode of the 414 Sports Podcast. So let's kick things off and talk about the NBA draft that took place last Thursday. And there were so many elements within the NBA draft that had, as I noted, Milwaukee or Wisconsin ties. And I kept struggling to figure out how are we going to make our way through the draft and cover all of the various angles. And I thought, what better way then to let's just start with how things played out with regards to the draft. So with regards to the draft, the very first pick with a Wisconsin tie turned out to be Johnny Davis. Now, Johnny Davis was projected to go somewhere in that 10 to 12 spot, whether it was the Washington Wizards, the New York Knicks, the Oklahoma City Thunder, somewhere, as I noted, between that 10 and 12 spot. But then as the night progressed and we got to number 10, this is what we heard. With the 10th pick in the 2022 NBA draft, the Washington Wizards select Johnny Davis from the University of Wisconsin. So there was the Wisconsin Badger, now alumnus, Johnny Davis, goes number 10 to the Washington Wizards. We know he's going to bring an attitude, a positive attitude to that Washington 
Wizards franchise. We know his mindset is all about playing defense, and we know he can score the basketball. It's going to be an interesting ride with regards to the Washington Wizards and how they utilize Johnny Davis. Johnny Davis, we know, needs a series of shots, and then once he gets going, look out, Katie bar the door, he can play some hoop. But Bradley Beal is somewhat similar to that. So you've got two guys now who are very similar as far as their styles go. How Bradley Beal or Johnny Davis alters what they do moving forward so that they can combine their skill sets and play together with regards to the Wizards is something that the franchise is going to have to take a look at. Another turn with that is to take a peek and see if Johnny Davis takes that next step like we all believe he can. Can Johnny Davis now be the cornerstone for a Washington Wizards team who can then deal Bradley Beal for draft picks or other high-profile veterans to come in and fit with what Johnny Davis is doing. And again, all speculation throughout the draft. That, to me, is the wonderful thing about whether it's the NBA draft, the NFL draft, Major League Baseball, it doesn't matter, is that this speculation about how these young people can fit into the professional framework of whatever team they end up being on, that can be exciting. I tried to stay away uh, the other night watching the NBA draft from some of the negative stuff on Twitter. It's amazing how immediate the negativity can rise within social media and as opposed to just enjoying the moment. So Johnny Davis, again, going at number 10 to the Washington Wizards. Now for the Wisconsin Badgers, they're really going to need to at this point really capitalize on this. For so long, though the Badgers, you know, and Frank Kaminsky or Sam Decker or some of the others who have gone to the pros after going through the Badger program, the Badgers have had this, oh, I don't even want to call it a cloud over their head, but this aura around them that you go there, you get developed, you spend your four years, and then after that four years, you could get drafted, you could go play in Europe if that's your desire. They will develop your skill set, but it's a four-year process. Johnny Davis really bucked that trend, leaving now in after excuse me his second year, showing the jump that he made from his freshman to sophomore year. And if the Badgers can now find another couple of players here in these successive years that have the same type of success that find themselves in this case being a top 10 pick, now suddenly that aura, that cloud, the the whatever you want to phrase it as surrounding that Wisconsin Badger program kind of dwindles away. And so you get a different perspective. So congratulations to Johnny Davis for for getting himself drafted in the top 10. Not only does he have game on the floor, but you get the impression that he's a little bit mature beyond his age uh, off the floor. And the fact that his dad, Mark, who played professional basketball, had a couple of uh, 10-day stints with the Milwaukee Bucks back in the 80s, as well as some other teams, knows what to expect, can help guide his son now going forward. I think it was a great pick by the Wizards who are looking to once again, like other teams within the NBA, to turn that corner and see if now they can put some of these components together in order to make a run for it and get to that level and have the kind of success, even like the Milwaukee Bucks have had, 
in drafting Giannis, who over the course of a few years obviously has panned into one of the best players in all of basketball. So again, congratulations to Johnny Davis. That was a great way to kick off the draft. Now I might stretch this one just a little bit, but we had someone also get drafted with a Milwaukee connection, and that was Ochai Abaji, the standout guard slash wing from Kansas, who's coming off of a national championship, someone who was named most outstanding player of this past Final Four, 6'5", 215, found himself going to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And so why am I talking about Ochai Abaji, a kid out of Kansas, someone who's gone to Cleveland? It's because he was born here in the 414. His parents played college basketball at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, a university we're going to talk about in just a moment as well. But Ochai going to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Here's what Ochai Abaji had to say in his press conference after being selected by the Cleveland Cavaliers. First off, I just want to thank uh, the organization in Cleveland um, for, you know, drafting me, believing in me. Um, I'm going to give you 110% every single day and a positive attitude. So um, that's all. That's really all. I'm just going to be a hard worker, come in, uh, be humble, and, and, you know, represent my city well. So here's why I think the pickup of Ochai Abaji by the Cleveland Cavaliers is really an important one for that franchise. Here's a young man who has spent all four years. I guess in the world of basketball, he could be a bit of a late bloomer, so to speak, really getting to the forefront nationally in his junior and senior year of college, obviously helping to lead the Kansas Jayhawks to a national championship. But what you're going to get is a very mature, a very bright young man on that team who has an unbelievably solid family background. His sister, an incredible volleyball player at the University of Texas. His mom at one point was a teacher here in the Milwaukee public school system. Just a really, really outstanding family. A great young man who I think has a skill set that will fit well with the Cleveland Cavaliers and bring a little bit more, I'll say, maturity both on and off the floor that Others might not be at yet because of the fact that he played four years at the University of Kansas. So a great move uh, for the Cleveland Cavaliers to get someone of the caliber of Ochai Abaji. And then we slide over to our Milwaukee Bucks, who at number 24 in the draft on Thursday picked up Marjan Bochamp out of the Ignite of the G League uh, coming to the Milwaukee Bucks. Now the Milwaukee Bucks really need some shooting. And so reading some of the things going into the draft, seeing some of the post-draft analysis and all of the things that are combined and meld together to make up some of the reaction with regards to this draft pick, one thing I will say is this, they got, in my opinion, the right person. Bochamp, 6'6", 199, has got a 7-foot wingspan, going to play out on the wing, has the ability to play defense, which is something that Budenholzer really stresses. And though the Milwaukee Bucks needed a shooter, they didn't need a shooter out of college. The Milwaukee Bucks are going to moving into next season because of where they're at. The Milwaukee Bucks, obviously, now not the defending champions because the Golden State Warriors took that away from us. But very recently, they were NBA champions. And this year, it was just 
obvious with Middleton going down that they missed the perimeter shot with any sort of consistency. There was just no consistency, whether it was beyond the arc, at the wing, anything from the perimeter. With, as I was saying, where the Bucks are at, they're in a must-win situation. It sounds a little bit like what we did around Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers in that it, it's now. And Giannis, though he has a few more years more left as far as his playing ability goes than Aaron Rodgers, the structure of that team is to win right now. And so in the offseason, it'll be really important for the Bucks to find that shooter, but find a veteran shooter. We don't need somebody coming out of college who's going to hit the wall. And all of these rookies at some point, unless the teams manage their minutes appropriately, are going to hit the wall in their rookie season. It happens. It happens whether you're jumping from high school into college, college to the pros, or in those rare cases, you're going right from high school to the pros. You can go back to and watch some of the YouTube videos of interviews with somebody like Kobe Bryant, who will say that he was hitting some shots, or I, I should say not hitting shots. He was throwing up some air balls, and I think it was a game against Charlotte that he referenced when he realized he's playing more games, the stress of an NBA season with the travel and everything else that goes along with it, he had to re-prepare himself. He had to, especially at that point, work on his leg strength in order to sustain what he needed to do throughout the NBA season. So all of these rookies are going to hit a wall. Now, with that said, the fact that you got a very, very athletic player in Marjan Beauchamp who played for Ignite in the NBA G League, took a little bit of different route. We had a couple of players come out of that program within the G League. It's something I think you might see more of, though, you know, obviously the hyperbole is everybody's like, well, the G League is going to replace the college world of basketball, that college basketball won't have the same level uh, of excitement that it has now because all these young men are going to head to the G League. I still don't buy that. I think college basketball in and of itself will not only help prepare, like the G League teams do, help prepare these young men for the NBA, but the exposure college basketball gets as it sits right now and for the foreseeable future as far as marketing goes with these with these players is much greater than anything you'll find in the G League. But nonetheless, uh, Marjan uh, talked after being drafted about what the G League helped with his preparation for now becoming a Milwaukee Buck. Yeah, the, uh, the NBA G League Ignite, you know, they, they, they definitely like – I feel like I found myself, you know, like I found new ways in my game, uh, at night, and not just on the court, but just like on, on the, off the court and, you know, building good habits and really just like, like, like I said, like finding, finding a defensive motor, uh, and learning the defensive terminology. And really like, I would, I would give that advice to any kid that's wants to go to be a, be a pro, you know, and I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm step ahead of, you know, people coming in. All right, so that's Marjan Beauchamp, the newest member of the Milwaukee Bucks, drafted number 24. If you get an opportunity, I would highly suggest that you read some background on this young man. It's in, it's a lesson in perseverance. It's a lesson in how perseverance can help you achieve your dreams and your goals. And he's had a very, very challenging 
uh, background, so to speak, and for him to be where he's at right now, you can understand where all those tears were coming from on draft night when he was taken by the Milwaukee Bucks. He's got the kind of backstory that if he were to rise to a certain level of stardom, we've all known that Giannis had his movie released over this past weekend in Rise on Disney+, Plus, which is a, a great watch if you're a basketball fan, especially if you're a Milwaukee Buck fan. I highly recommend sitting down and watching that one with the family. But Marjan's backstory has that kind of quality that if he achieves a level of success, you could definitely see somebody putting together a movie uh, regarding his life story. So we hope that uh, everything goes well for him. You could, again, see how the tears came flowing on draft night, him realizing his dream, and let's hope that uh, that athletic ability that we were talking about earlier pans out and he becomes an integral part moving forward with the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, the night started to get a little bit long. The NBA draft, for whatever reason this year, seemed a bit disjointed. It seemed as if there were there were trades like they always do, but we're announcing trades before the pick, and then the player still is putting on the cap of the team that drafted him, which I understand. I mean, if if I'm drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks, that's a memory you want to have noted, and so you take that picture, but then whatever trades are taking place aren't being announced till an hour later. It, it just became really, really disjointed, as well as some of the presentation by ABC and ESPN was a bit disjointed as well. And I don't know how much that had to do with the draft being disjointed or the draft being disjointed had something to do with the presentation becoming disjointed. But nonetheless, as the hours drew on in that first round, it it was starting to get a little bit late and the eyes were starting to get a little bit heavy. And then it was time for Golden State the now reigning NBA champions to make their pick. And you talk about a shot of caffeine, a shot of adrenaline to get you up and around and ready for the end of the first and second round. All it took was Commissioner Adam Silver to do this. With the 28th pick in the 2022 NBA draft, the Golden State Warriors select Patrick Baldwin Jr., from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. That was the shot in the arm that was needed, and there were a couple of things that immediately came to mind. Number one, I couldn't have been happier for Patrick Baldwin Jr. and his family. After going through everything throughout the course of, let's say, the last two years, here's a young man who, in high school at Sussex-Hamilton, just west of the Milwaukee area, was one of the most highly recruited basketball talents, high school basketball talents anywhere in the country, a five-star athlete who then went through the whole process of being recruited after injuring his ankle early on his senior year, sat out his senior year in which many believe, including myself, that Sussex Hamilton, had he been on the floor, would have won the state championship that year, but had to sit out, wants to rest that ankle, get everything as good as possible so that he can go play college ball, have that freshman campaign like many thought he would, and then really market himself to be a lottery pick, much like Johnny Davis, in this year's draft. 
So he then goes through the recruiting process. He's got, you know, Duke, Kentucky, you name it. After him, he decides at his uh, announcement to say, you know what, I'm staying at home. I'm going to play for my pops. I'm going to play for dad over at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So he goes over to UWM, gets himself ready for his freshman year. But one thing we learned early on is that ankle never fared the way many had hoped it would with rest. And one of the things that Patrick Baldwin Sr. said on our show on 1250 AM, The Fan, our college sports show, when we talked to him was that, and I'll use my own words because Coach was much more eloquent about it than I could ever be, but essentially that because UWM kind of was behind the eight ball, so to speak, in hiring a strength and conditioning coach, there are those that feel that because that ankle didn't get the proper strength and conditioning it needed going into the college basketball season, that was one of the reasons why the injury kept reoccurring. So now you get through the season where he'd play a game or two, maybe a half, have to sit out for a while because the ankle was bothering him, swelling the whole nine yards, come back, play a little bit, not then able to play for a while. Finally, we get towards the latter portion of the season and PBJ his coach being his dad and everyone around him says it's time to just pull the plug because you're doing more damage than good at this point because that ankle just isn't where it's supposed to be so he pulls out of the remainder of the season we get to the end of the season Patrick Baldwin Jr. or excuse me Patrick Baldwin dad gets released, gets fired from his job at UWM because the team did not pan out with the expectations that were there. And then there was this debate about whether Patrick Baldwin Jr. would even enter the draft because of what happened during his freshman campaign. And those that know Patrick Baldwin Jr. and his family knows that they probably sat down and it was a very thought out and an arduous decision coming to the realization that, listen, we're not going to try college anymore. We're going to go ahead and make that jump. And so in doing that, you just didn't know what was going to happen. You went from a young man who you thought was going to be a lottery pick that you were hoping at least going into last Thursday that he would be taken in the second round. And then lo and behold, at number 28, as we said, the Golden State Warriors grab Patrick Baldwin Jr. Now, what are they getting? They're getting a 6'10 power wing with a 7'1 wingspan who can shoot the ball lights out when healthy. Doesn't that seem to fit what Golden State does? I mean, if if there's a match for a young man with a certain skill set to fall into the lap of a team like the Golden State Warriors where he's not going to be expected to be a superstar right off the bat. Some of these young men that were drafted on Thursday, there's going to be a lot of pressure by the team and the fan base to step on that floor and be the man, so to speak. Patrick Baldwin Jr. does not have to do that over in San Francisco. Golden State's got all of that already. What he can do is develop his skill set so that in a year or two, when it's his turn, so to speak, he's ready to go. The other thing I'm excited about for Patrick Baldwin Jr. is you're going to a team now who has a training staff and a coaching staff and a front office 
who've dealt with a similar injury. Let's not, excuse me, let's not forget that Steph Curry himself suffered an ankle episode that transcended, you know, much of his career over the last couple of years. They've rehabbed it. They've the medical team has done a magnificent job of getting him healthy, and we saw the impact that he had on that team winning another NBA championship, making it uh, for Curry to be MVP of the championship series. So you've got a team that's dealt with something that was similar. And lo and behold now, he joins those other guys at Golden State who have Milwaukee connections, and I know Bart Winkler uh, who does the morning show on 1250 AM, the fan here in Milwaukee, wants to start calling them the 414 ears. I don't know if I spit that out the way he wants it, but I, I think it's ingenious because of the Milwaukee connections that are there with Golden State. So couldn't have been happier. I mean, that was just, like I said, a shot of adrenaline towards the end of the first round. So a huge congratulations to he and his family. And, and now let's see if UWM, UWM now, whose name made it into the spotlight, anytime your name goes into the spotlight, it registers with people. Maybe, maybe, maybe they can capitalize on the recruiting train just a little bit. So that essentially somewhat ended the joy because as, as we waited through the second round, I kept waiting to hear, Marquette's Justin Lewis to be picked by someone. And it never happened. Justin Lewis signed as a free agent with the Chicago Bulls. Now, the way the Chicago Bulls scooped Justin Lewis up immediately once the draft was over tells me that had they had a second-round pick, remember, we only went 58 picks this year. Chicago and was it Charlotte? I forget who the other team was was uh, punished by the NBA for collusion, and because of it, they lost their second-round picks this year. I think the Bulls would have taken him with that second-round pick, even though it was later in the draft, still would have found him drafted as well. But nonetheless, he gets picked up immediately by the Chicago Bulls on a two-way contract. So you have a feeling Justin will be spending some time next year in the G League, refining that perimeter shot. He's a beast coming off the wing. He can rebound with the best of them. He can play defense. What he needs work on is that perimeter shot. He gets that perimeter shot down, look out. He's going to be one of those names that people scratch their heads about three, four, five years and go, how did, how did he escape, or how did he escape, excuse me, the draft process and become a free agent and the Bulls will be the better for it. So we hope Justin Lewis uh, coming out of Marquette does well. We had a couple other of uh, Marquette, shall we call him now, alum that are going to get some looks. Theo John, who played this past year for Duke and got it to the Final Four, took that extra year of eligibility to play for Coach K after four years at Marquette, is going to be playing with the NBA Summer League as of the Minnesota Timberwolves, or with the Minnesota Timberwolves. I think I'm getting my verbiage backwards there. But the Minnesota Timberwolves have picked up Theo John to play some Summer League ball. So hopefully Theo can make an impression, at least to find himself with a G League team. I don't think Theo right now 
would find himself immediately with an NBA team, but maybe a G League team, or maybe put some things on tape and find himself playing professionally overseas. Also, Jamal Cain picked up by the Miami Heat to play as a member of their summer league team as well. So Jamal Cain, just an interesting I hate to use the word character because I think when you use the word character, you think for some reason there's something wrong. He's just a very effervescent young man, and I think uh, his personality is going to be something to watch if he gets a G League or a European assignment because there there is a skill set there, and you mix that with the personality that Jamal Kane has, and he, he's going to be a marketing focal point for whatever team he lands with. There were some other notables that did not get picked up in this year's draft, and I'll tell you one that really stood out for me amongst others. There were some others, obviously, that you couldn't believe kind of fell by the wayside as the draft was moving forward. But the biggest one for me was Kofi Cockburn out of the University of Illinois, the big center. And and what I what I kept thinking about was what a difference the NBA and its evolution as far as the game goes over the last, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. If Kofi Cockburn had come out late 80s, mid-90s, even late 90s, early 2000s, he would have been a lottery pick, a 7-1 beast at the post, kind of Shaquille O'Neal-esque. You get where I'm going with this? But the game has changed so much. Now we look for athletic wings, We don't need necessarily a true center anymore. We like to play positionless basketball. We don't have a center, a power forward, a forward, an off guard or a shooting guard, and a point guard. We have five guys on the floor that hopefully you can mix and match and put in different spots. We play now what many believe to be termed as positionless basketball. Kofi Cockburn is going to have to figure what is the best fit and what being that best fit will it do to enhance his skill set he's got to have some mid-range jumpers that will fall consistently for him to now play in the NBA I really think Kofi Cockburn is going to end up finding his way overseas and playing in Europe and because Europe still loves to have the big man on the low post that's a place I could see him playing 10-15 years over there in Europe and making a whole bunch of money playing that traditional center spot for a European team. So that was the NBA draft. And as I said, the summer league will be coming shortly and we'll get to see many of these guys at least up close on our TV, unless you're going to Vegas to see what they're at or where they're at right now as we get ready to move forward. All right, coming up after we take a quick timeout, we're going to talk some NFL And the NFL lately has made more news off the field than on. I've got two stories that I think illustrate that, and we'll get to it in just a sec. All right, welcome back in. Let's talk some NFL news. And unfortunately, much of it is happening off the field as opposed to on the field. And two of those stories, the two, in my opinion, top stories 
that are plaguing the NFL right now and have the potential to be storylines throughout the season, if not into next year, are these. We'll start with Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington Commanders. Now, Dan Snyder, since his ownership, since certain things have been revealed about his tenure as owner, there's been this cloud over the team. He's been defiant at times, but defiant over things that maybe he shouldn't have been defiant about. Yes, he's a man who has earned a ton of money, and I'm sure that mindset has helped him in the business world, but it's either escalated or it's not a mindset that works well in this particular business, and that being an NFL owner. So Dan Snyder was supposed to sit in front of the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Reforms and decline to show. He just declined to show, which is not necessarily good when you snub the government because they have the reach to find every little crumb of dirt that you possess. They'll figure it out. And so when you snub the oversight committee, that has the potential being there. So because he snubbed the oversight committee, you start to hear people say, well, why doesn't Roger Goodell fire him? Well, Roger Goodell is an extension of the owners. The commissioner is an extension of the owners, the commissioner's office, regardless of what the league is. So Roger Goodell does not have the power to just walk in and say, Daniel Snyder, you're causing us a lot of grief. You've done some things as owner of the Washington Commanders that we're not particularly happy about, and we're going to ask you to step aside. The only way that Daniel Snyder leaves as owner is if he's voted out by the other NFL owners or he just flat out decides, enough of this, I'm going to sell the team. You have to, if you're a Commanders fan, hope that he just sells the team because under his ownership, I don't foresee. He's got that aura. He, he, just, he has this aura about him with his tenure as owner that tells me this team is not going to win anytime soon, and it's not going to win under his leadership. This would be the kind of thing that as soon as he sells the team, not to a member of his family, but to someone else, as soon as he sells the team, they'll immediately be successful. Whatever this cloud is will be gone. Remember back in 2005, My Name is Earl, the television show, where he had done some bad things, and won the lottery and decided to create a list and try to rectify and change his karma. It's kind of what Dan Snyder needs to do. He's got to change his karma. So he doesn't show up for the House Oversight Committee. We realize that if you go back as far as 2009, there have been accusations of sexual misconduct against him. And then probably the craziest story that came out of it was that former COO, David Pawkin, he testified that Snyder had ordered him to pour milk on the floor in Mark Lerner's suite at FedEx Field. Now, let's put some things into context here. Mark Lerner is the owner of the Washington Nationals. And somewhere along the line, both of them were competing for business I don't necessarily know what that business was, but they were competitors for a a, a certain market share 
of whatever it is they were competing at to earn some money. And apparently Mark Lerner won. And because Dan Snyder was PO'd about it, he ordered his COO to take milk, pour it on the floor underneath the furniture in his suite at FedEx Field so that when he came in, by that time the milk would be soured and his entire suite would stink. This is so childish, it's beyond comprehension. It's just beyond comprehension. Like, very few times when you do podcasts should you be at a loss for words. I'm at a loss for words. And this doesn't even delve into the number of accusations of sexual misconduct that has taken place by the aforementioned, allegedly, and other members within the organization. I'm saying if you are a Washington Commanders fan, as my father was, who was stationed in Washington, D.C. while he was in service with the Marine Corps and became a huge Washington fan because that's where he and his fellow uh, Marines would go to watch football games, they, they, they're not going to see any sort of commander glory right now until Dan Snyder sells that team. And then there's Deshaun Watson. So this week, we will learn what Deshaun Watson's punishment is from the NFL. Deshaun Watson now has has settled, civilly settled, 20 of the 24 sexual sexual conduct allegations brought against him in court. And when you stop and think of it for a quick second, you're like, wow, that's that all okay, he's got 20 of the 24 out of the way. But flip it once and stop and think if any, let's say, I don't even want to pick a person off the Green Bay Packers since we're talking about football, but think in your mind of your favorite Packer and you wake up one morning and you open up your computer and you see that there are four allegations of sexual misconduct brought against your favorite player. That would just be unbelievably devastating. And yet Deshaun Watson still has four of those allegations against him. Even though he settled 20, he still has four of them sitting against him. So now, with the fact that he settled 20 of the 24, the NFL, I guess, feels um, on more sound footing, maybe, to go ahead and begin their disciplinary process. There are many that feel the NFL is going to push for a year suspension. I don't know what that means for Cleveland. Cleveland gave him a huge contract in Deshaun Watson. And you, if you're Deshaun Watson, you can understand why he wanted a huge contract because he just paid 20 of the 24 accusers for signing confidentiality agreements and letting things go. So a good portion of that contract now has helped paid off his legal problems. But he still has four remaining. If you're Cleveland, what do you do? Where are you going to go? Like, you made it known by signing Deshaun Watson that Baker Mayfield is not part of your future. We're done with Baker. That experiment has ended. Fine. All teams have the right to move on. When you feel like something has hit the road, block, so to speak, where it's not going to go anywhere else, this experiment that we had with you, with our team, is not going to move any further. It's time we trade you. All well and good. 
But now you're sitting with the guy that you brought in running the risk of missing at least half, minimal, I would say, half, if not the entire season this year. And the quarterback that you had as a starter is not going to come back and play for you. If you're Cleveland, what do you do? It's it's astounding to me, again, how upper management can make some of the decisions that they make. Now, we we go nuts all the time, right, about the Green Bay Packers. Oh, they all they do is get to the playoffs. That's all they want to do. Just got to get to the playoffs, get to the playoffs. Nobody cares about a Super Bowl. Now, now maybe the comparison when you look at a team like Cleveland, like Washington, and yes, you want Super Bowl runs because you have arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game in Aaron Rodgers, but Green Bay is doing a lot of stuff right as opposed to some of these other franchises. So again, the things going down between Dan Snyder and the Washington Commanders and Deshaun Watson and the Cleveland Browns, again, all distracting what could be a very exciting upcoming season as, again, our world is getting back to normal coming off the pandemic. But it's the -the off-the-field stuff right now that's garnering a whole lot more attention. And obviously, you, I, and everybody in between will definitely keep an eye on it. When we return after this, Let's talk about our Milwaukee Brewers who seem to be treading water as of late, and we'll get to it in just a sec. All right, let's spend some time now talking about our Milwaukee Brewers and baseball in general. And before we get into the Brewers, Just a quick footnote, coming up on the next podcast, we're going to spend a little time diving into the world of college athletics, specifically talking about the College World Series that just wrapped up and a really entertaining game on Sunday for Ole Miss to come away with the championship. We've got some exciting things really taking place with the Wisconsin Badgers, both with football and basketball. So on Wednesday, we're going to spend a great deal of time when we put the next podcast together talking about college athletics here in our state and within our own city. And as we get into the Brewers, the Brewers, 10-3 victors on Sunday over the Toronto Blue Jays. Now that puts the Brewers at 42-33 and on the season. And you almost got to thinking going into yesterday's game, one, it was an important game, right? It was a game in which if you win, you take the series. And we've been talking about that is the season as progressed, and I'll get into that in just a sec. But it was against a caliber opponent. You hear a lot of the Brewer critics, a lot of the Brewer naysayers talking about, well, it's great. You can beat up on Cincinnati. You can beat up on Pittsburgh. You might even beat up on the Chicago Cubs, three teams within your division who aren't necessarily living up to potential. Nah, heck with it. They'd had no potential going into this season. They're just bad teams right now. You struggled a little bit against St. Louis at home, but you got the split. And now it's over a month before you'll see the Cardinals again. And we've said time and time again, it's going to be really important now for the Brewers to win these series at worst split, but win these series and start putting some distance between them and the Cardinals in the NL Central. 
We've said time and time again, watch out for the Cardinals once you get into late August, September. That team always seemingly finds a way to get hot, and you want to have that distance so you're not necessarily living day by day by day once the playoffs come. With that said, you had a Toronto Blue Jay team that has been playing very well so far this season rolling into American Family Field. Toronto right now sitting at 40-32 and 32 in the American League East. And you came away with a 10-3 victory, and more importantly, you took the series two games to one. Somebody needs to figure out how to go to the Brewers, how to go to that pitching staff, and let them know that the game now will just start in the second inning. I, I don't know how subliminal, I don't know, subliminally you can do that, but the pitching staff, as of late, has struggled in that first inning. They gave up three runs again yesterday. And I'll tell you what, the way the offense has been, where you have struggled for hits and struggled for runs, you thought posting or allowing the Toronto po- uh, Blue Jays excuse me, to post three in that first inning was going to be Doomsday Express. Instead, the Brewers answered with three of their own and then five in the second to take an 8-3 lead, add two more on in the sixth, then that's how you come away with this 10-3 victory. So listening to the Brewer postgame show, we'll give a shout-out to uh, our friend, I think we can say, the franchise, Tim Allen, who does the Brewer postgame show in Milwaukee on 1250 AM. The fan been doing it forever, and if there's anybody in this area who knows Brewer baseball, the history of it, what's going on during the season, it's Tim Allen. So as as I was listening to the postgame show yesterday, one of his callers, I think, summed it up very well. And my apologies, I don't remember the gentleman's name. But he was essentially saying, listen, from the beginning of the season till maybe August, maybe mid-August, I'm looking at series, and that's exactly what we've been talking about, and maybe that's why I agreed with the call so much. But you've got to win series. And then once you get to, oh, mid to late August and in September, then you start living game by game. And hopefully, if you've taken these series early on, when you start living game by game, you'll be in a position that it won't be as panic-stricken as it has been in the past in some situations. Hopefully, by the time we get to mid-August, late August, early September, again, we put some distance between us and second place in the NL Central. Now, we know we have expanded playoffs beginning this season, but this is a Brewer club who has been by many predicted to win the NL Central, and I think that prediction still holds based on the pitching staff. Now, the pitching staff has had some injuries. And the only thing I kept thinking of this morning as I was getting things ready to roll here for the podcast was every team seems to go through a stretch during a Major League Baseball season in which injuries get compounded. And they've been compounded for the Milwaukee Brewers here in, oh, we'll say the last four to six to even eight weeks. If this is the stretch that the Brewers have as far as injuries go, and now players start getting healthy, and they're healthy for post-All-Star break stretches heading into September, I have to think that the glass is half full when it comes to our brew crew, that if they can get these pitchers back to healthy, 
back to healthy. I think I just made up my own phrase. But if these guys can get healthy once again and do what they did in the beginning of the season, when you get a Willie Peralta and, and all of the others back and in form again, that's when you have to believe the Brewers again ascend by many to the top of the NL Central and stay there and stay there in a commanding fashion. The one element that is starting to come around ever so slowly is the offense. And yesterday when you put 10 runs on the board, if you can get an Andrew McCutcheon to hit for average and give you some power numbers. I mean, Andrew McCutcheon comes in, he's not going to be the Andrew McCutcheon of his MVP campaign but he still has the ability to do some things offensively. If we can get his numbers up, if Tyrone Taylor can continue his play offensively, if Christian Yelich can start hitting for numbers. And what I mean by hitting for numbers, I don't need home runs. Just get some hits. And he seems a whole lot more comfortable in that leadoff spot than any other position Craig Council has put him in while he was struggling to put the bat on the ball. And so if those guys can start hitting their numbers, they don't have to hit above their numbers. They just have to start hitting their numbers. And you couple that with the type of pitching the Brewers have, that, that's going to make for a strong campaign. So again, with that 10-3 win, the Brewers take the series now. Now let's go back to the last three. They take the series with the Toronto Blue Jays. They split the series with the St. Louis Cardinals, and they sweep and then obviously take the series against the Cincinnati Reds. So if we just take that stretch, you start to see that the light is getting a little bit brighter after the darkness, which was all of the injuries that befell the Milwaukee Brewers. And so you have to think going towards the All-Star break and after, again, if these guys can get healthy, this is going to be a fun back half of the MLB season. So once again, the Brewers now will head on the road as they'll take on the Tampa Bay Rays. Are they the Tampa Bay Rays, the Florida Rays? They're they're Tampa, right? That's Tampa. I get so confused between the Marlins and the Rays, but they're heading down to Tampa to take on the Rays on the road for their next series. So let's hope things continue to go well for our Milwaukee Brewers. We've got one more segment to go, and we're going to talk once again some professional golf as the Live Tour and the PGA continue to make news. We're going to wrap things up with a story regarding them, and then I'll cap things off today's podcast with one of the best epic walk-offs in all of professional sports and again it's not to win a game it's just a walk-off and i'll talk about it on the other side of this episode of the 414 Sports Podcast. Once again, thank you so much for logging in and joining us, whether you've done so on Spotify, Google, Apple, or any of the other platforms that 
you may have picked us up on. We do greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit that like and subscribe button because we'd love to have you on a regular basis. And we wrap things up today once again talking about the soap opera that has been professional golf as the Live Tour will play later this week in Portland. And they've added a couple of players, which made, of course, headlines, and and the big one being Brooks Kepka. So Brooks Kepka now has jumped over to the Live Tour, and another player that has jumped over as well in amateur by the last name of Wolf. Why can't I think of his Matthew Wolf? Oh my goodness, Matthew Wolf in amateur has jumped over to the Live Tour as well. Now, if the Live Tour is going to survive, these are the guys, as I've said in a previous podcast, I think the Live Tour has to go after because you're allowing some of these amateurs who have turned professional after spending a couple years playing uh, for a college in many cases. They come out of college. They want to get going. They find themselves on the Corn Ferry Tour trying to earn their card to get to the PGA Tour. Now here's the Live Tour offering a ton of money for them to jump on board that's where I think if the Live Tour is going to survive, that's where it's going to have to be. With the addition of Brooks Kepka, I kept looking at the thing. Who does the Live Tour have currently that you would be excited about? And, and I mean that with all honesty. Does Brooks Kepka remind you of an individual who's going to grind, especially if he's been given a Brinks truck to just come and play? Brooks Kepka, who recently got married, I, 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 these, these are dollars that are generational altering. So to kind of befault some of these guys for figuring out what their price is, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I get the moral dilemma, and we talked about that in a previous episode. I, I completely get the moral dilemma with who's backing this league and how people feel about it. Absolutely. But what we've seen is that certain individuals have a price. And because they have a price, now what would be doing? But then I also stop and think about somebody like Brooks Kepka, who has performed very well in majors, hasn't done really much else. So to get a ton of money without having to really go out and earn it, you'll get to play a bit of golf? Okay, why not? But I don't think of, oh, shall we say hirings by the liver? that are really setting the world on fire. One thing that has happened since the Live Tour's inception is it has pushed the PGA now to up some of the purses. So the PGA Tour now has kind of, instead of completely balking at the Live Tour, stepped things up and increased the purses for a number of events moving forward in the season. I think the PGA Tour has still got some work to do. When you talk about personal licensing, when you talk about even the caddies, uh, we had a story about caddies getting treated very in the live tour, much better than some of the amenities that are offered to them on the PGA tour. I think there's a way the PGA can answer the bell and really put the live tour kind of as an exhibition tour. And that's really what it looks like as of, as of its current state. You're playing three rounds. They haven't yet gotten world ranking points for their players. You got a guy like, again, Bryson DeChambeau, who not will ever bounce back after having wrist surgery. And I think, I, I've said this before, I th- in my opinion, that's the reason why he jumped. I don't know if he believes in his heart 
that he can play the way he's doing. He based his game on just bombing it, right? He put all the the science and the metrics into it and just bombing the ball and going from there. And with that injury at relatively young age, I don't know if he believes he can play that kind of golf. So he's got to re-alter everything. And now you have the Live Tour who's going to give you a ton of money while trying to figure this all out, and you still get to play a little competitive golf while you're figuring it out. But are you really worried about Bryson DeChambeau as he's trying to heal from that injury? Are you really worried about Brooks Kepka, Sergio Garcia? I mean, Sergio Garcia winning the Masters. Sergio Garcia is one of those guys... A lot like Greg Norman, the commissioner of the league, who's been there, knocked on the door, and never was able really to cross the threshold. Are you really worried about Phil Mickelson, 51 years old, who is well past his prime, but he's a name? So the Lip Tour has been able to get some names, but they haven't necessarily got names that are going to wow you. And so if the PGA Tour can, again, do some things differently to appease its current membership, the Live Tour, even with all its financial backing, may not necessarily get the kind of run that they were hoping for. So the Tour coming up this weekend, it'll be interesting to see again what the numbers are. Um, I'm sure people will turn out to watch it, but what will their numbers be? I know the last time they played, you went on YouTube, you could find it. And I know at one point I, I popped it on and I saw it had 33,000 views. When you're looking at a worldwide audience, that's not really great. So Portland, let's see what happens as the Live Tour plays again this week. And now it's the out of the great walk-offs in the history of exaggeration. I'm done. There's no reason to keep going. This is just killing me. I... I, I got to be done. I'll go to the range. I'll figure things out. I'll take a few days. I am just not going to be. And so Jason Kokrak, um, he's playing in the PGA Tour. The 37-year-old has been rumored, actually, that he may jump to the Live Tour, but he's at the Travelers Championship, and he hits a wayward shot. And when I say a wayward shot, I mean a wayward shot. He went about as far right as you can. And in going after the ball, he said, went to look for it and just kept walking. Never returned, never signed his card, got in his car and went home. How, how rare is that to see a PGA Tour professional just say, you know what, this isn't my weekend, I'm done, I'm sorry, but not sign his card, not notify anybody, just disappeared into the trees and the bushes and called it a day. That to me is one of the epic walk-offs in all sports. Now, with that, if he does the tour again, the lift tour, what you getting? You're getting a guy who now is noted for walking off the course because he was playing so terrible? I, I don't know what necessarily that does for your professionalism, so to speak, moving forward. And with that said, let's close things out. Thank you so much again for joining us on the 414 Sports Podcast. I'm Don Wachillis. Have a great week. 